0: Good morning. Well, it is a pleasure of mine to be here this morning with you. Uh, As you guys know, uh, the team has left uh, Par Lodge in in Uganda and they are making the long, slow travel back to the United States. And and we've been blessed to hear of all that God has done and see pictures from there. there was one picture that stood out to me. It probably stood out to you as well if you saw it. Um, I've, I don't know how many trips I've been on like this, uh, but the in the, the years that I have gone, the many years that I have gone, probably the lar- largest outreach that I've been a part of, we drew, we had, a, we had Eddie Roman with us, pro BMX guy, and he was doing tricks and it was in a fairly sizable village and and we probably had about 5,000 people show up in one night. We showed a movie later on. We shared the gospel. And, and we were just blown away by just the immensity of the outreach. And, and then I got one of the email updates stating that they thought about 10,000 people had come to, to an outreach uh, right near the border of Sudan in Uganda. And, and at first I kind of thought, is this... Is this like the Christian Ten Thousand, where it's really like three or four thousand, but we we like to we like to bump the numbers up? And then there was a photo that you could click on, and you pull it up, and immediately you look at it, and you're like, "Whoa, that's like ten thousand people." There's that was a lot of people, and, and uh, what a what a blessing it is to know from you know from our small church that to to send a team uh, to. Um, back years ago when we first started going to Midigo, they they called it the end of the earth, that nobody comes out here. And and now in this area where there's a population of 98% Muslims, that we do an outreach where 10,000 people show up and hear the gospel multiple times. And uh, we got to do a pastor's conference there as well. And and just so thankful for God at all the fruit that he produced through that ministry and in the hearts of our team and in the hearts of the people in that area. So we just ask that you continue to pray for Pastor Kevin and the team as, as they make their way back home. So as I said, it's uh, with joy that I get to be here with you this morning to share God's word. And if you would like to open to Isaiah 40, we're just going to look at a, a couple of verses at the end of Isaiah 40. That, Especially uh, one of the verses that you've probably all heard and rejoiced in before. And since I only teach randomly, I get to pick whatever verses I want to teach from. And why not pick the good ones? Uh, That's right. That's how pastors think. Then people walk away and they're like, you did so good. That was so great. I'm like, yeah, I know. I get to pick whatever I want. It's awesome. Anyway, in Isaiah 40, at verse 27, uh, we read... To him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I just realized I was reading from the ESV. Sorry. I uh, did not grab my King James Version, New King James Version, but if there's any difference in the words, and I think there are a couple, it's because I may be reading from a different translation. Um, anyway, let's let's pray and get started. Father, it is a uh, curious but joyful thing that we do here each Sunday morning as we're just standing and and singing praises to an unseen god worshiping you with our hearts open wanting you to lead and guide us and empower us to see you and to love you more to the world this may be curious but to us lord although we cannot see you with our eyes with our eyes we we know you with our Minds and our hearts and our lives, for you walk closely with us. And you've done this by the power of the gospel. And we thank you this morning. We thank you for your love and your grace that shattered the barriers of sin, it healed the curse of sin, so that we might know your presence. And we ask, Father, would you? Make our vision clear now, would you open our hearts even more to the glories of your gospel, to the beauty of your son, that we might continue to lay down our lives for you moment by moment. We thank you for this time and we thank you for your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning I wanted to um, talk to you about hope. I wanted to talk to you about hope because hope, along with love, is one of the most powerful emotions that man has been endowed with. It strengthens us. It it can guide us. It can lead us down dark and weary roads. We've all heard stories of Nazi concentration camps, uh, those who, who are taken and, and put into these prisons surrounded by barbed wire. And if you've seen the photos of it, it is, it is, is tragic to, to think and see of these, these men and women who stand there. And, and they have these wires as they, they look out into the world around them that they can see through clearly. But, but these wires hold them back while, while men point guns at them and don't allow them the freedom that, that God had blessed them with. And they were enslaved. They were enslaved by prison, by guards, by guns. They were enslaved by pain and, and torture. And it marked... Every aspect of their lives, every minute of every day, they would wake up and there they were still in prison. They they would feel the hunger and be reminded, even, even in any lighter moments that they may have been blessed with, they were reminded moment by moment of their enslavement, of their entrapment in this horrifying situation. Yet, we could read also of of uh, one, one specific Jewish writer who was a psychologist and, and he kept mental notes throughout his time as, as he was in a concentration camp. And after he was liberated, he, he wrote a book and he, and he talked about hope specifically. He talked about those that he would look around and see and analyze and, and realize those who are clinging to even the lightest flicker of hope, they seem to have a greater chance of surviving, of of living, of enduring this horrific scene. Yet on the other hand, there would be those who had lost hope completely, and he wrote about the stages of despair that he would witness people go through. He would talk about those who would first begin to refuse in any way to clean themselves. And, and then, then that would go to refusing to put on clothes. They, just, they would just stop trying to, to take care of themselves physically in any way. The guards would start to threaten them and beat them, but eventually even that would, would become of no effect. They would just sit there and be like, "I go ahead, threaten me all you want, beat me all you want. I, I'm not going on. I'm not taking another step. I'm not moving forward. They would refuse any type of medical help from their fellow prisoners. They would refuse any type of food whatsoever. And eventually, sadly, he says, they would just lie there. Lie there in this near comatose state where it would seem like nothing would bother them at all until they would fade off into death. And he would talk about how this is the response to not having any hope, not seeing any light whatsoever, and just getting to the point where you just just give up. And in that, there would be no survival. For those who would start down that path of despair, there was no escape for them. They would almost certainly die in that state. And maybe you have also seen people unable to live beyond their own perceived barbed wire of their own lives, whatever they may call it, whether it was past or current abuses, whether it's you know addictions to drug or alcohol or or you know just failed relationships, just random types of struggles, and and you could feel the you could almost see the barbed wire wrapped around them as they were held down to this earth, and they seemingly lost all hope till. The point where they eventually just gave up and either metaphorically or literally just lie down and quit on life because they have no hope. They were swallowed up by despair and and that is depressing, but I'm here to tell you that there are nuances of despair everywhere you look. In fact, I believe that every non-believer and even some believers that we know Constantly flirt with the feeling of despair or the fear of despair. It's, it's like it just like crouches at our feet, and the shadows sit there and, and we don't know how to handle them. So we run to all of these different places. We we see people who in their apparently joyous but very busy lives. They seem to be avoiding something that they don't even understand completely. As children, they run around and try to make friends, as many friends as they can. They go to school and maybe they try to get good grades or become the best athletes that they can possibly be. And and they get older and they want to get to the right college to hopefully make something of their lives and they want to find the right person to marry, to, to find some type of fulfillment. And then they look around and they're searching for the cars and the house And the kids that that just paint that picture of fulfilled life. And they go on. And they busy their own kids' lives. And they start the circle all over again. And they just keep as busy as they possibly can. Hiding themselves from the meaninglessness, life, and despair itself. Because it's always right there. And this is how Scripture talks. Earlier in Isaiah 28, we, we hear Isaiah the prophet writing, and he's talking about the leaders of Israel and their powerful stations in life, and, and their numbing themselves by alcohol, knowing that doom is coming and there's nothing they can do about it and they're making treaties with the world around them and as they do all these things, the writer says, for we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. We've made the lies of this world our shelter. We've built up all these barriers to try to protect ourselves from the one thing that we can't protect ourselves from and we feel the scratches of despair at our feet almost constantly. Even the highest successes can't hide ourselves from it. I remember clearly Tom Brady after he won his first Super Bowl back in 2002 with the Patriots and he's the Super Bowl MVP and, and here he is, he had gone from that horrible University of Michigan. I'm a Michigan State guy. He'd gone from there and, and, and he had gone into the NFL in his rookie year. He had, he had gone to the Super Bowl and he had reached the highest heights that he could dream of. He had won the Super Bowl. And, and shortly after that, he was being interviewed by 60 Minutes or 2020 or one of those things. And, and as he's being interviewed, the interviewer looks at him and says, and I'll never forget this, seeing this, the look on his face and how he responds, the, the interviewer says, so specifically, so when you woke up the next morning, what did you think? Expecting one type of answer from this guy who was just writing as high as you can off from life, and he said, well, it's funny, when I woke up the next morning, I looked up at the ceiling, and the first thing I thought was, is that it? Is that all there is? That was his point. He'd gotten as far as he could go in life and it still left him wanton. Can you imagine getting to the place where all the finances were taken care of? Everything that you've ever longed and yearned for has been handed to you that this world can offer you and then looking up and going, wait a second, that's all? I've been working my entire life for this and that's all I get? Just some brief moment of elation followed by more emptiness? Despair is everywhere if we see it accurately. Yet, what we also see in Scripture is that a life hid in Jesus Christ carries with it a powerful juxtaposition or contrast to the horror of hopeless despair. And that is hope itself. Hope in Christ. The world hides in treasures that can only fade away. But Christians have a treasure in Jesus Christ that can never be lost. That can never be taken away from us. Not just in this life, for all the ages to come, for all of eternity, we will always have Christ. Is He that steals away meaninglessness. He gives us, us a hope that the world can't understand. I, I think of, of Jim Elliott who has this brilliant mind is about to go off to Ecuador in the 50s and, and people began to question, why would you go there? What are you doing? Like you, there's so much ahead of you. There's so many things you can do. Why go to the Aka Indians? It's the point to this people group that nobody knows. What, why go there? And Jim wrote these famous words, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He had a hope that could not be quenched and that the world could not understand. And this is what faith-filled hope and the glorious shepherd of Isaiah 40 does. You see, believers are not those who merely survive the barbed wires of life, the struggles of life. Believers who place their faith and hope in Christ, they persevere through it. They go beyond that. They actually flourish in the face of it. Because they have all they need. They have Jesus Christ himself. We see this in Isaiah 40, verse 5, where, where God promises us, He irrevocably guarantees the people of the world to display His glory through a person, through Jesus Christ Himself, and through those who would follow Him, through His people. And that truth is the centerpiece of this text we've just read in Isaiah forty twenty seven through 31 that it is God's greatness, His promise, His guarantee that is our hope. That it allows us to look into the seeming abyss of life. And I'm, I'm quoting Nietzsche with that. Uh, the, the abyss and the darkness of life. And we don't have to be like that, that angst-ridden Superman and just dive head first in. No, we can look at it and say, no, there's something more. We have Christ. We have a hope that extends beyond this earth. And it's that hope that sustains us. Now as we begin to examine our text, we begin to deal with Israel's despair, which is really a microcosm of all humanity's despair. In verse 27, as I already read, it says... Why do you say, O Jacob? You and speak, O Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord. And my right is disregarded by my God. He's. If if you remember, if you if you know what the situation here is, is the prophet is talking, almost he's talking prophetically about what the situation of Israel is going to be in the future as they're going to be carried off into exile. The Babylonians are going to come and they're, and they're going to capture uh, the, the south there and they're going to take them off and, and they're going to live for 70 years in exile away from their home, away from the temple as it's going to be torn down. The, the, the very picture of God's presence in the midst of Israel, it's all going to be torn to shreds and they're going to be enslaved in a foreign land. And the response is, God, why have you hidden yourself from me? God, where are you? We're sitting here with, with no hope, with, with no future. The temple has been torn down. Why are you hiding yourself from us? We can't even see you anymore. They felt abandoned and left by God. Now, it may be due to their own sin, but the feeling is clear. And it led them to questioning God even more in a sinful, despair filled way. And it is the oldest trick of Satan. You look at Genesis and, and where sin came into the world and how it came. You have Adam and Eve and they're walking in perfect union with each other, in perfect union with God, and everything is as good as it can possibly be. They're innocent of sin. And Satan comes upon the scene and says, Hey, can you eat of all of these trees? And Eve says, Yeah, well, all of them except for that one. And Satan begins to spin his web of deceit. And he he comes to the point where he says, basically, you know, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because he doesn't really care about you. He doesn't want you to have the very best. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't really care about you. This is the lie he was selling, and this is the lie humanity has been buying ever since. The Jewish exiles, Jewish exiles, they bought into it. And sometimes we buy into it as well, don't we? Nobody in this room has walked every moment of every day in perfect, unwavering faith in God. In one way or another, we have all had those questions of God, where are you? Like, what's happening? I don't understand this. I I have struggled with that. I'm sure practically nearly every person in this room knows my wife has been sick for just in a month or so. It'll be four straight years. And I wouldn't lie to you and tell you that, that every moment I've just been a pillar of strength. I've struggled. I've, I've wrestled with my own faith. Not that I stopped believing that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I just wrestled with, with trusting Him completely. There's been even times where I've resisted my own faith, where I've walked alone in the dark and, and began to say to God things like, you know, I know you're working out something. I believe Romans 8.28. I just don't care anymore. I, I don't want to keep walking down this path day after day with seemingly no into it. It was my own way of asking God, where are you? It's a struggle we can Endure, and that's where the Jews were. That is where we can look and ask, what does God do in this? And the answer is one commentator wrote, He goes the extra mile. He looks and understands and sees our frailties and our weaknesses and he keeps pursuing. That's what Isaiah 40 is all about. In the first eight verses, he he promises, he promises that he will send his son, that he will reveal His glory to the world. He, he shows them that He's created everything, that He's in charge of everything, and things may look like they're wildly out of control, but everywhere we look, or everywhere the Jews look, He says, I want you to see my handiwork. I've placed the stars and numbered them. I laid out the seas in the hollow of my hand. Everything that's happening in this world, it's been a part of my plan." And ultimately, I will send my servant to prove to you that I have never left you. I love you, and I'll sacrifice everything for you. He goes the extra mile, and this is the proactive grace and love of our God that it dispels despair when you look at it closely when we are reminded once again of who he is and what he has done, despair flees as he goes the extra mile. And, and for that, I want to take a brief second to apply the gospel to our lives. I want to ask you possibly an uncomfortable question for you, and that is, do you go the extra mile like Jesus does? When you feel abandoned by those around you, which I'm sure we all have felt that at one time or another, when, when your efforts and good works and, and desire to reach out to those and love those next to you and, and help them and encourage them through life, and they just, for seemingly no reason whatsoever, just turn their back on you, do you go the extra mile like Christ? Or do you fall back into self preservation? Well, if they don't care for me, I'm not going to care for them. I'm no doormat. Do we really follow the model of our God and go the extra mile for those around us? Do we love in the way that we have been loved? If not, let's find guidance and encouragement from what comes next. You see, our hope, our strength, our witness, everything that matters in our life hangs upon, as I said a second ago, who God is and what He does. You look at verse 28, and here's the response to their questioning of, God, where are you? Verse 28 says, have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What we have here in verse 28 is a reminder to us of who God is. For those who are muddled in despair, maybe even now, maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or maybe you have, and and you're praying in your heart and your mind right now, God, I believe, help my unbelief. And God says, remember who I am. He says four things here that really summarizes all of Isaiah 40. He says, first, God is an everlasting God. He always has been, and He always Will be. He knows the beginning from the end. He's standing outside of the timeline of your life and He sees everything. Every shadow of darkness that scratches at your feet, every doubt and fear that you have, He knows it all and He has seen how it's developed and why you are the way you are and where you are going and how He is leading you. He is the everlasting God. He says, not only is He everlasting, He is the Creator. And as He has created everything, He owns everything. He owns every action and every interaction in this world, and He owns us. He looks upon us with care and compassion because we are His. Maybe you've made something. Maybe you're a car person and, and you've worked on cars or, or you're into some types of arts and crafts or photography or anything that you've been creative about. You look upon that thing that you've poured your heart into and you care for it. Why? Because you created it. How much more does God care for us in the world that he has created? And the next two points make that obvious. God is everlasting. He is the creator and he is at work i say that because the verse here the fourth part of the third part of the verse says he does not faint or grow weary he does not come to the point where time is going on and he just gets so worn out by our constant mistakes and constant doubts he gets worn out by humanity's rebellion against him none of those things happen he is active in the world. He didn't just wind the world up like a clock and set it down and go do something better. He is active every moment of every day. He's active in our lives. And sometimes we get confused by that, because our lives are so painful, but then he closes this part off by his understanding is unsearchable. He's wise. He knows what he's doing. He sees everything because he always has been. He's created everything. He's active in everything. And he is wise in everything that he does. And this is critical to remember because faith-filled hope can feel impossible for us at times because we live right now. We live in the moment you don't know what's going to happen when you walk out those doors. And maybe your life is, feels like it's wave after wave just keeps smacking you in the face and, and you don't know how to handle the next second and it feels overwhelming. We live right now and we quickly get worn out by life's struggles because they keep reminding us of how little we are in control of. And how little we understand. And the result of that is that we could become squeezed by the moment. Carrie and I recently listened to a message from Joni Erickson Tata, and she talked about how you could be squeezed by life. And as life squeezes you, you can, and, and struggle and, and despair seems to be closing in. You can go in a handful of directions and, and one of them you can turn to Christ and the Holy Spirit bides you with strength and power that doesn't come from yourself or, or you can quickly turn to sin. And this is often what we do, right? When, when life keeps hitting us and hitting us as we are living in the moment and, and the pain of life starts to blind our eyes from who God is and and we look around and we're like whatever is going to bring me relief right now, that is what I'm going to do. I know God is calling me in this direction, but that direction is hard. I'm going in this direction. Whatever makes life easier right now, I just need something right now. And we turn from God and we turn to the temporary solution of sin. That is exactly why scripture regularly urges us to be slow to speak and slow to anger, to be patient, to wait upon him. This type of faith-filled hope is foundational for the Christian life. We must keep our eyes on Him and cling to Him if we are going to find any strength. See, because when we look at God, He has no struggle with these issues because He is not confined by time. As He told us, as we just read in in verse 28, He controls every square inch of His creation. He always knows what He's doing. He... As as we tell our kids on a regular base, on a regular basis, when we're laying them down at night, I always like to remind our kids that that you're going to sleep right now, but remember God never sleeps. He never sleeps. I'm going to turn off the lights and it's going to be dark here, and you won't be able to see, but God will see you because He never lays down for a nap. He is always Active and He always knows what He's doing and He alone is worthy of your trust. These are reminders that we always need and I love this style of, of encouragement and comfort because it does remind me of how Carrie and I seek to comfort our kids. When they begin to lose faith in us, again, like in a microcosm, what do we do? We take our kids and we remind them as seven, eight, nine-year-olds. We remind them, I understand things better than you. It's okay. And, you know, they talk about my third grader going into fourth. She'll she'll come home and she'll talk to me about something that's happening at school. And, you know, like maybe a tenth of the way through the story, I already know where it's going to go. I already know what's going to be said. I already know what it's going to look like. Not because I can see the future, although she'll stop sometimes when I... Stop her, and I tell her what's about to happen, and she's like, how'd you know that? Did somebody tell you? No, I know because I was once in third grade. I I know what it looks like to struggle through life. I know what it's like to have somebody say something that hurts you, and you respond, and they respond, and then people start to talk about it, and I know what it's like because I've been there. I've walked down that road. I don't know exactly what it's like, but I've been there. It's okay, you can trust me. When I encourage you, when I try to lead you, you can trust me because I've walked down this road before and this is what God is doing. He's saying, trust me because this is who I am. Wait upon me, place your hope in me because this is who I am. So verse 28 tells us who God is and then verse 29 reminds us of what he does. In verse 29, it says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. I love this because who he is is the all powerful one. He says, what do I do? I give my strength to you. This is what I do. God here is speaking to the weary and the weak. But to help us understand what he really means here, we need to ask the question, is he talking just about physical strength? When we wait upon the Lord, does that mean now we're going to be, you know, Superman? We're going to jump around, and we're going to fly, and we're going to, you know, run for 50 miles straight without taking a breather or getting a drink of water? Or is he talking about Spiritual strength? Well, I think the answer to the question is kind of both. But I think the emphasis is on spiritual, as the spiritual strength guides us towards physical strength. Why do I say that? Well, you look at what God is doing, He gives supernatural spiritual strength to those who are going to continue to walk in exile. He's reminding them, this is who I am. Trust me because I know what I'm doing and I have a plan. Your situation may not change. In fact, you may die in your situation, but that doesn't change who I am and what I'm doing. Focus your eyes on me. And as the people then, as we now, as believers in Christ, as our vision gets taken off of this world as we look past the temporary difficulties that we are faced with and we focus on Christ. We find spiritual strength that brings perseverance. It is who God is and what he does in our lives that secures perseverance, which, perseverance, which is realistically the final point here in Isaiah forty. If you look at verse thirty, as all of that is our backdrop, he says, Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary, they shall walk and not faint. Much like throughout all of Isaiah's teachings, the prophet is blunt in proclaiming that man, at their very best, humanity at their peak of strength, where they're most youthful, when they're most filled with vitality and vigor, and, and they're ready to go and, and keep running and forward and pressing into the world around them, even at their greatest strengths, Isaiah says they are doomed to grow weary. They are doomed to fail at some point. And with each year that I get older and you get older, we look at that and we go, yep, (laughs) that about sums me up. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm right there. Full of strength and energy. And then another year goes by and, man, man, I used to be able to make it on like three, four, five hours of sleep and keep going. I, I can't do that anymore. Just yesterday, I'm at, the, I'm at the grocery store and I'm going down and I'm looking at the aisles and I'm like, hmm, multivitamins that give you energy. I, I might need some of that. Let me, let me grab one of those and, and see if that helps me out because we all lose strength. We are all doomed to fall and fail. Scripture is repeating this to us over and over again. Those of you who are trying to walk in your own strength, look at the Word of God and let it remind you. Even Adam and Eve, who were without sin, heeded the lies of Satan. They were tempted, and they fell. They failed. We go on in other places. You think of you think of Noah, and, and here's a world that's just been judged by God. The world's just been flooded. You would think those people would walk off the boat, and they would be like, I am not walking in that direction ever again. Did you see what God just did? Did you see all that he just did? You think they would run in fear to God and cling to him and be like, whatever you say, that's the direction I'm going in. No, Tower of Babel. We will be like God. They failed. Even the history of Israel itself, think of all that they saw, all that they watched going into slavery and, and all of the stuff that happened to free them from slavery and they enter into the promised land. This people who are just, you know... Nomads, sojourners wandering around and they enter in and they conquer this land and God just keeps pouring out his blessing and and his presence upon them over and over again and they fall and, and they struggle and they sin and God keeps reminding them, don't go down that direction. Remember that covenant we made back on Sinai? Don't go there. I'm right here with you. I've blessed you beyond any other people group in the entire world in all of history. Yet they're marked by failure and turning away from God. This is the story of all humanity. This is the story of all people who turn their back on God and seek to walk, walk, walk in their own strength. We are all bound to failure no matter how hard we try. So how can we overcome our own wretchedness? God. That's it. That's what all of these stories should be reminding you. Look at them and be reminded. Oh, I need God. People need God. Don't look at them and be like, oh, those morons. <laughs> if I was back then, I would have totally got that right. I would have seen G- saw Jesus coming and I would have gone running and been like, yes. If it was me, no. You wouldn't have. We need God. We need Him to save us from our own failures in life. It's God who simply does the impossible in our lives. And that is what is being said in verse 31. It says, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. You see that? The barbed wires of life are on them, but they fly. They do the impossible. They have no strength to get up and take another step, yet they get up and they run and endure. They keep moving. They keep going. They walk without quitting. And please understand, this is not a matter in any way of willpower, something that we rely upon way too much. It's first and foremost a matter of faith. Our strength comes not from what we do and the plans that we make. Our our strength comes from faith. Who do we set our eyes upon, God says? When you wait upon me, that's where you'll find strength. Stop looking to yourself and look to me. Wait for me. And this is awful counsel, isn't it? We hate this. We hate this. We hate waiting. If you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I hate waiting. No, you're not unique or special. I hate waiting too. Everybody hates waiting. Nobody likes waiting. It is for my six-year-old Nolan. It's the worst word on the planet. Wait, no, (laughs) be patient. No, I hate waiting waiting. He learned it right away because that's how we all are. And we live in a culture that magnifies that, don't we? It's just, it's everywhere we look. We got to wait too long for food. Let's make fast food. Let's make microwaves. I don't want to wake in bank lines. Let's make ATMs. Forget that. Let's put our banks on our phone. Now I don't have to wait at all anymore. Of course, if we have to wait for that, I read this a couple of years ago, it's probably even shorter now, I read a report that said that if a site doesn't pull up within the first five seconds, or a video doesn't pull up within the first five seconds, they were writing to those who put those things out there, know that if your video or your site or whatever you're putting on the internet, if it doesn't pull up in five seconds, 90% of the people are already gone. Because I'm not waiting for six seconds. I've got stuff to do. I'll go to another website. I'll just do it right now. I want to know something. I don't have to look it up on a, in an encyclopedia anymore and take the time to scroll through it. Scroll through. I just type it in my phone. And you better believe I'm not going to read about that thing that I wanted to know about for more than maybe five or six minutes. Because then I'm just worn out. Because uh, now... <laughs> Now it's like I start reading about, I'm a history guy, so I start reading about, I'm talking about myself when I say all these things. I start reading about, you know, some historical figure, and I get three or four minutes in it, and I read another name and what he did, and I'm like, well, I wonder what he did. I'm going to click on that. I'm going to start reading about him. like, 20 minutes goes by, I've learned almost nothing about 15 different people, and then I've just got to (laughs) go. And I go on with life. That's our knowledge. I mean, you young people, (laughs) I get to say that now, I'm 46. You young people, this is why we say things like their knowledge is a mile wide and an inch deep. Because we hate waiting. And here's God saying, wait, I want you to wait, but I don't like waiting. Wait. You want to find supernatural strength, wait and keep waiting. What is this type of waiting? Well, it's not the type of waiting that says, okay, just passively sit on your hands and do nothing. Just do nothing. Just sit there and be like, well, you know, there's some truth to this, but the lie, there's a lie in it also. Well, just let go and let God. I'm just not going to do anything. Whatever happens, happens. Whatever will be, will be. Now my philosophy has just turned completely worldly. So it's not that type of waiting. And it's also not a type of waiting that's like spiritual ADD, where I'm waiting on God, but I'm going to do something. God, I'm waiting on you, but I'm going to do something. I've got to do something. I've got to go somewhere. I've got to make a move and make something happen. God, I'm waiting on you. Let me, let me do something, though. It doesn't look like either one of those things. Waiting here in Isaiah 40 is less about time. And it's more about trust and hope filled dependency. It's passively active that says, My eyes are on you, and where you go, that's where I'm gonna go. Do you want me to go in this direction? I've been praying about this, and it seems like you want me to go in this direction. I'm gonna move, Lord, help me. I'm gonna pray. If you don't want me to move, help me to wait. I need you. I trust you for everything. Whatever direction you want me to go in, that's the direction I want to go in. It is hope-filled dependency that moves where God moves. Which brings us back to my opening note. And that is man's greatest need. Hope. Hope. We must hope And trust that God is the everlasting creator who is actively at work in his world and he's working with omnipotent wisdom because he knows everything. Trust him. Waiting on God is a consistent, steady conviction that God will be glorified in my life. Therefore, I will obey. And I will go when he says go. And I will sit when he says sit. That's what waiting is. This is what he means when he says, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. The definition of wait here is a trust that displays itself in hopeful obedience. I've been talking about hope all throughout this because if you had an NIV translation, they take the word wait here in the Hebrew and they translate it as hope itself because the word wait in the Hebrew is a combination of all of those things. We think wait and we think do nothing. But that's not what God is saying. He says wait and he's saying look to me, look to me. Keep looking to me. Trust me. Trust me. Follow me. That's what it is to wait upon the Lord. We see this in different parts of scripture, and I'm already way late on time, so I'll just give you, just remind you of stories about Abraham. Here's Abraham. He's the picture of faith, and, and what does he do? He's, he's Finally, has this child that he's been waiting for for like ninety years, and God comes to him and he says, "I've given you Isaac. Now go and take him and sacrifice him on a mountain." And Abraham waits, but what he waits upon the Lord. But what does his wait look like? He wakes up early the next morning and he goes because he's trusting God. He travels for three days and finally he gets to the mountain and he looks up to the couple of guys who are traveling with him and he reveals his hopefulness because he says, you guys stay here. Me and the boy are going up there and we're going to worship and we will come back. We will come back. And can you imagine the weight that Abraham would feel As Isaac's sitting there and he's like, Dad, I see the firewood. I see the knife. Where's the sacrifice? I don't even know how I'd get the words out that Abraham said, God will provide. He's going to provide. Waiting is humble obedience to God. It is a picture of of faith. It's a picture of saving faith. If you don't know, if you've never placed your faith, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is what it looks like. It's not saying, Oh, I believe Jesus is real. It's not just simply saying that. It's saying I trust him with everything. Even when I don't understand the direction that he's calling me to, I'm gonna wait on him. And when we do that, our strength is renewed. Our strength is renewed. And I'll end with a simple question. Are you willing to expectantly and actively wait on Jesus Christ's plan? No matter what that looks like, going or staying, are you willing to wait and put your trust in him? Hope and know that he is the king of everything. And if he has called me to bite my tongue and keep my mouth shut right now, that is what I'll do. When he's called me to love the unlovable in the most painful experiences of my life, that's what I'll do because I'm waiting and trusting in him. Are you willing to make plans But then have Him set the pace for those plans. Are you willing to submit your life wholly and fully to Him? Are you willing to submit all of your emotions and your pain and your suffering and your sorrows and all of your joys to Him and say, when it gets difficult and life is squeezing me, I can take the easy route, but I want Him. I trust Him. I'm going to keep pursuing him. Are you willing to wait upon the Lord and remain obedient to his call? My only practical application for this this morning is let's end by confessing and trusting. Let's, let's confess in our hearts, God. I believe, help me unbelief. I struggle. Uh, You know, life is squeezing me over here and I'm looking for the easy way out and, and that's sin. Help me to trust you more. Make me willing to trust you with everything. Give me the strength to run and not grow weary. That's what you've promised to do. Would you do it? Let's pray that together and see what God will do in our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we are overwhelmed by your promises, Lord. We are overwhelmed by the truth of who you are. You are the uncreated creator of all things. You have always been and always will be. You have been present in every part of our lives and you have never turned a blind eye. You have placed us at the center of your wise plan for our lives. And you have made it powerfully evident of your love for us by sending your son to die in our place. And even in light of all of those truths, and all of your love, and all of your provision, we have struggled. We do struggle whether in big ways or small ways, Lord, we struggle. And we ask, Father, one, you would forgive us of those sins. And we ask that you would increase our trust so that we may wait upon you and bring glory to your name. And as your name is glorified, as you promised that you would do, Father, would you renew our strength Cause us to fly beyond the barbed wires of our life. Cause cause us to run and not grow weary as we pursue you. We thank you, Lord, that we can pray these words with confidence because you have promised us these things. We ask that you would do them by the power of your spirit in our hearts that we might worship you with every bit of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.